Hello, and welcome to episode 18 of The Modern Manager. I'm your host, Mamie Canfer-Stewart. My guest today is Wes K.O. Wes is a marketing strategy expert who helps senior executives lead high-stakes product launches. She has held leadership roles at brands like L'Oreal, Gap, Flight, which is a San Francisco-based ad tech startup that was acquired by Snapchat. And most recently, she worked side-by-side bestselling author Seth Godin for three years as the founding executive director of the Alt-MBA, which is an online leadership and management school. She grew that organization from the ground up to 550 cities in 45 countries. She has led over 150 launches of products, programs, campaigns, features, and initiatives over the past 10 years. And now she works with entrepreneurs at mid-sized companies to develop strategic messaging that drives sales and trains in-house teams to ship fast, drive projects forward, and act like owners. Ooh, she has done so much. Wes and I talk about being a change agent in your organization, building a high-performance team in which people take ownership of their work, and getting team members to speak their mind. Now, Wes is so amazing because she has also agreed to do a special bonus Q&A session for members of the Modern Manager community on Patreon. That session will be on Thursday, October 11th at 1 p.m. Eastern, and it is available to all members at the $5 level and above. So during this special session, Wes will answer your specific questions. And if you can't attend live, just message your questions directly through Patreon, send them to me by email or message me on LinkedIn, and we will share the recording afterwards. So to get access to the special session, join the community at P-A-T. R-E-O-N dot com slash modern manager. That link and all the other links that you'll need are in the show notes. Now here's my interview with Wes. You're listening to The Modern Manager, a podcast dedicated to helping you be a rock star boss with a thriving team. Whether you're looking to upgrade your meetings, cultivate your team, or grow as a leader, this podcast is for you. Let's get into the show. Wes, I am so excited that you are joining me today. This is going to be so much fun. And I know we just met, but we met actually through a mutual friend. We've never actually met in person. So this is one of my first calls with kind of a total stranger. So I think it's going to be really interesting. So we'll both get to learn a lot. Yeah, I'm super excited. So I want to talk about culture and what does it mean to build a high-performing team and a culture of high performance? And I get asked questions about this topic a lot. So maybe you can start first by telling us kind of your experience. I mean, I, I know I didn't intro, but just kind of like a quick experience of, kind of who you are and where you come from. And then let's dig into kind of what does it mean? What, how, how do you define culture and a high-performing culture? Sure. I've been in marketing for 10 years now at organizations at the Fortune 500 level, all the way to two-person teams. And I've seen a ton of different types of, of company cultures and microcultures too. You know, sometimes you have a, an overall culture for the company, but a specific team has a certain way of doing things. So I've always been really fascinated by and interested in how are certain teams High performing and just running in the same direction, and um, and and the people speak in shorthand. And why are other teams more dysfunctional? And you know, constantly running up against roadblocks or misunderstandings, or you know, needing to spend twice as long figuring out, you know, how do I tell someone on my team this thing that could have been a five minute conversation? 
And I think a lot of these topics are very related to marketing because it's, you know, it's about how do you position your ideas and encourage the behavior that you want to see so that that people feel comfortable taking action and there's trust. So when I define culture, it really is about how do we do things around here? What is the quote unquote norm? You know, and what what one group considers normal could be really foreign and weird to another group. And there's there's no such thing as just an objective normal. And I think culture is that water that we're all swimming in where, you know, if we're with a certain group of people or in a certain organization or on a certain team, we know how to behave in a certain way. We automatically kind of adjust our behavior um, in a certain way to fit that culture, which is why I think culture is so important because it is that water that, that um, we're, all, we're all swimming in and can really subconsciously impact whether or not we're either stepping up and pushing ourselves and taking on more ownership or kind of sitting back with our arms crossed, you know, waiting to be entertained or waiting for someone to tell us what to do. These are all different cultures, but they could feel very normal based on, you know, what, whichever organization that you're in. So you've gotten the opportunity to work inside big companies in startup startups and kind of building culture. And, you know, my experience has been that there are some organizations and whether it's because they're small or because they've been really intentional, have a pretty consistent culture kind of throughout the organization. And other organizations, whether it's because they've been unintentional or they've grown quickly and just have evolved the way they have, or because of the people who they've brought in, have really different cultures. And I'm thinking about, you know, as a manager, if I have a team and I have a way of working or kind of a way of behaviors that I'm expecting, and that's different from maybe the organization that I'm surrounded by, that could be a real tension. If I'm trying to cultivate one way of working or one set of expectations and the culture around me is really pushing something else, that that would be hard to navigate. Yeah, absolutely. Changing culture can be a very hard thing. And it's frustrating because a lot of the clients that I work with are change agents within their organizations. And they're the ones that are leading interesting projects or trying to get the team to do things differently, to adopt a new kind of process. And I hear all the time that they're frustrated by needing to really challenge the status quo and and helping their colleagues understand that, okay, just because we've always done things a certain way doesn't mean that that's the best way or that we should just keep doing it that way. you know And so if you're this one lone person in an organization that is trying to push in the other direction, it can be really hard to get allies and to, to convince people to be more open-minded. So I think in, in situations like that, um, either A, go to an organization that aligns with your values. And I think that's, you know, that's something that people are more and more being open to, you know, finding an organization that where they feel like, hey, this purpose and the mission that the organization's working on is something that I feel like is worthy of my time and attention and, and being at the office for eight or more hours per day, or B, figure out how do you position and frame your idea in a way where the people who are attached to the status quo don't think that whatever it is that you're proposing is that scary. And I always say that there's such a thing as new and scary or new and interesting. So you definitely don't want to be in that new and scary bucket where you know some, someone in senior management looks at your proposal or your idea or your project and says, oh my gosh, this is just going to add a lot of work to my plate. 
when this blows up, I'm going to have to deal with it. You know, I can see months and months of, of backlash. So if that person's thinking like that, they're not going to be really receptive to your idea or cultural change. But if you can frame it in a way that aligns with their worldview and with things that they already believe, and, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, aligns with their self-interest, that's when you have a shot at kind of Trojan horsing and sliding your idea through and past that immune system that organizations often have against new ideas. So this makes a lot of sense when I'm thinking about trying to change the culture of an organization and get buy-in from other senior leaders. And it's a lot of what I do in my work as well as trying to thinking about how to change culture of an organization, especially around effective meetings. But we're not going to get into that yet. But I'm wondering if it's different when you're thinking about being in the position of authority and looking at your team and saying, wow, we really should be more collaborative. Like we all have great expertise, but the way that we've been working is really siloed. And I, I want my team to just be more collaborative, even though the rest of the organization is kind of used to working more independently, more siloed, or even maybe with like a, an edge of competition in it. But I want to shift that with my own team. Is it different when you're the one who's looking down on your team, not down on your team, but who's like looking across your team and saying, I want us to work differently than the institution around us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, culture change happens person by person, one by one. And I think there's, there's the tendency to think about culture as this massive thing, this behemoth, this culture, like you can't point to it, but it's there and it's this big thing. But it really is reinforced on a daily basis based on the behaviors that you're encouraging and the behaviors that you're punishing. And I think especially if you're in a position of leadership, you're in a really powerful spot to influence change in a way where people are, are naturally looking to you to lead. And I believe that leadership is, is something that happens at all levels of an organization, regardless of what your title is. But especially if you are in charge of a group, you almost have a responsibility to lead them in a direction that, that is thoughtful and makes a lot of sense. And I think that in terms of, of tactical things you can do to shift the culture of your immediate team, one of them is going back to what I was saying with rewarding behaviors you want to see. One of them is making sure that if someone does something that, that is in line with the culture that you want to see, you're rewarding that behavior. So for example, if you say, hey guys, I really want everyone to be more open to thinking outside the box and throwing out ideas and not wanting everything to be perfect before we move forward. I want you all to speak up more. Okay, so that's something that I've heard a lot from from leaders. And the behavior that ensues, though, isn't always aligned. It doesn't always match because then someone will say an idea or someone will bring something to the boss, you know, when it's maybe half-baked, not quite so polished yet. And the boss will take one look at it and say, this sucks. You know, why did you bring this to me? Why didn't you proofread it more or whatever, or, or spend more time figuring out all the different contingency plans? And then that person hears that. And it's this like mini trauma where they're like, okay, I just had my wrist slapped when I did what the boss said we should all do. So every time that happens, there's a little bit less trust. There's a little bit less trust that, okay, when the boss says that, hey, I want to shift our culture and I want us to do blank, that we can just take that at face value. And I think it's the accumulation of these mini wrist slaps that really do add up over time and create a sense of jadedness or skepticism around culture and around being able to believe 
what the leader says when they when they say that they want to move in a in a certain direction. I love the way you described that as like a little mini trauma. And I see it all the time too, that as leaders, we have to own the things we're saying. We have to role model the behaviors and we have to reinforce them. And if you're telling your team, I want you to be more collaborative and then you're not collaborating or I want you to bring more wild, crazy, half-baked, unpolished ideas because that's where we're going to find the jewels in those rough states. And then you're, you're basically telling people, why did you do that? Right. You're sending mixed signals and it's, it's such a horrible thing to do to your team, right? You're, it's hard on us sometimes as leaders to change our own behavior, even though we know what we want, but we have to be part of that change too. Right? It's not just, I want this culture. And so other team members, you all change. Sometimes we have to change too, in order to facilitate that culture. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So let's talk more about this bringing half-baked ideas. Cause I also get that question a lot. You know, how do I create a sense of safety within my team and not just with me, but across you know, the people together so that people are willing to share, you know, the, the ideas that are not fully formed, or they're willing to ask really tough questions or push back and raise concerns that are not from a kind of, I'm the downer person on this team and I'm always souring everything, but from a place of like, I have real concerns about this. And I know that everyone else in this room is really excited by this idea, but I still see some potential flaws that need to get hammered out. You know, what have you seen? What have you experienced? What have you done with your own teams that have helped create that kind of safe space for sharing? One thing that I find really powerful is the idea of rigor plus psychological safety. So what I mean by, by rigor is, you know, I always told my team, no lazy thinking. You know, if, if you come up with an idea and it's pie in the sky, you know, I'm never going to tell you, no, that's a bad idea, but I am going to ask you questions about it and poke holes and want to learn more. And I want you to be able to defend your idea and at least explain it. So I think that idea of having a culture of rigor where it's expected that any idea really goes, but you should be open and excited about presenting that idea and defending it and and talking through why it's exciting and why there are data points rooted in reality that, that support why this idea might work. So that's the rigor piece. And then hashtag no lazy thinking piece. And then the psychological safety is the other part of that. So the psychological safety piece is trusting that we all care a lot. I care a lot about you. You care a lot about me. No one's trying to make the other person look stupid or feel foolish. And this is a space where we're going to vigorously debate with each other to try to come to the best possible outcome and the best possible solution. And because it's way better for your team member internally to point out that there are obvious gaps in a certain idea than to find out eight months later when you're at launch or when a bunch of customers are complaining about why something doesn't work or why something doesn't make sense. So it's this idea that we are speaking up because we care a lot. And that debate and rigorous discussion isn't a sign that you know someone's just being surly but it's because we care that that's why we're trying to pull holes early at a time when there's still there's still a chance to think more thoroughly about something as we move forward. And I think that those two things combined, the rigorous thinking plus psychological safety creates a really good breeding ground for people to be able to speak freely 
and offer ideas, but also know that, you know, if we debate about it and if people ask me questions, that doesn't mean that they don't trust me. It means that we're trying to figure out, okay, what are the boundaries of this idea? Where are the times when it works? Where are the times when it doesn't? So we can come up with something that is good for the entire organization and for our team. I love the combination of rigor and psychological safety. That makes a lot of sense. And and positioning it as this is better for everyone. And there are some times where you need to get buy-in, right? You need to, you still need to have that sense of ownership, right? Like after you have a robust conversation like this, people will take greater ownership in the ideas because they were part of the generation of those ideas. But there are other times where you don't go through a big rigorous debate like that, but you still need people to take ownership and you still need them to buy in. I feel like that's where some of the marketing practices come in. So what's your take on that side of it, on generating buy-in when you you maybe can't do it through a typical, let's all get together and put our heads together kind of practice? Mm -hmm. Especially if you're doing anything new, whether it's internally or, or selling a product that challenges the status quo you really have to put a lot of time and effort into thinking about how do I sell this idea so that the person, a specific individual, feels comfortable moving forward. And I spent a lot of time throughout my career thinking about how do I align incentives so that this, whatever this thing is that I want to do, that I can make it easier for someone to say yes and make it easier for them to help or make it easier for them to support. And there are a lot of times when you know, if we're really honest with ourselves, if there's some idea that we want to get buy-in for, you know, we're thinking about all the reasons why it's exciting for us and for our team. And we're not really thinking about, wow, is this going to create a lot more work for other teams? Or is there some bottleneck that another team might be facing if we introduce this? Or how stressed out are my coworkers right now? So The more that we can get in front of that and be proactive and empathize with coworkers and with colleagues, the greater the chances that when you present the idea, you can really appeal to things that they're thinking about and that matter for them. And I think positioning your idea in that way is half the battle, if not more than half the battle. You know, ideas are a dime a dozen, but getting buy-in and getting that institutional support can often be really, really hard. So how good you are at getting people to say, I like the direction that you're going in. I'm coming with you. I'm putting the full support of my team behind this and we're going to make it a priority. That can often mean the difference between whether, whether a project succeeds or whether it stalls. You know, And there's all been times when someone asks us to do something and you're thinking, hmm, I can either make life really easy for you or I can make it really hard for you. you know, like, Is this something that I'm going to prioritize or is this something I'm going to stall about, you know, and, and stonewall about. So again, this goes back to culture with creating a culture where the default is to lean in and, and help each other out. But it also has a lot to do with individually, are you positioning something in a way where the person that you're presenting it to is thinking, you know, okay, well, what's in it for me? You're thinking about that and presenting those reasons and appealing to them so that you make it easy for them to say yes. I, I love this idea of making it easy to say yes. I'm like thinking about all the things I've asked people to do and how that's not the way that I thought about it. All right. I want to shift a little bit and talk more about high-performing teams and a high-performing culture. So in your experience, or kind of what are the dimensions or what are the characteristics of a team that has that kind of high-performance culture? One of the elements of a high-performing team is that everyone is thinking like an owner. 
No one is waiting for the boss to tell them what to do. No one is trying to cover their ass about something. Everyone's thinking like an owner and thinking about how can I take more responsibility for driving this project forward? And I think starting with that mentality is huge because it's hard to teach that in many ways. You know, a lot of times it's, does someone have that fire in the belly? Are they a person that cares a lot? And and how do we attract more people who care a lot and want to do a, a great job and want to contribute? So some of that is more of a, you know, a worldview stance and attracting people with that stance. But, you know, rewarding that over time is super important. So when people take on more ownership or when people volunteer to help out another team without being asked, or when they prioritize something that they know would make you know two other teams' lives a lot easier, but would make theirs a little bit harder in the short run, those are all acts of generosity. And they're not written anywhere. It's not in a mission statement, but it's this shared understanding that we're all in this together and and that we each hold a really deep responsibility for whether or not this organization works or not. And you can see this in a lot of small teams, especially because people are really close, but there's definitely ways to instill that in bigger organizations too. So I think that that ownership piece is is the first most important thing. And and related to that closely is caring. You know, how much do people care about the work that they're doing? That, you know, I'd mentioned that earlier, but it's it's hard to um, to get people to care if they just don't really, or they just want to do the bare minimum. So caring, I think, is another huge piece of that. You can you can train for skills. You know, it's easy to teach people a process, to show them documentation, to teach them the way to do something, but it's hard to get people to care more if they don't already care. And then I think that third piece of a high-performing team is rigorous thinking. And that means, you know, thinking about how would something work? Who is this for? What is this for? Who do we need buy-in from in order for this to move forward? What are a couple different models of organizations or teams that have done this before? What can we learn from them? How is our unique situation different? Do we have different assets and levers? Do we have different competitive advantages? These are all things that you can think about strategically from a high level for an entire organization. But even for a small project, if you're wanting to launch a certain campaign or if you want to launch a certain program, um, these are all things that you should think about and have assertions for because having a point of view is what moves the conversation forward. And if you know, you're doing a bunch of research, but you don't have a point of view about how does this research come together and what does this mean with what actions we should take today, tomorrow, the next month, six months from now, it's really hard to get momentum on a certain project. So I think that last piece is rigorous thinking and feeling like, hey, instead of just having you know a general idea, how can I think more deeply about this and put together some hypotheses about how I think this would work so that the entire team can chime in and poke holes and we can come up with something that we can take action on more confidently. So if I have my team and I'm listening to this podcast, I'm going, okay, I want to do one thing tomorrow in our next meeting to help me move one step closer to having that rigorous thinking or, or increasing ownership or, you know, trying to help people care more. What's one thing that I could do differently, you know, tomorrow? That is a great question. 
The one thing I would say is, you know, when when one of your direct reports comes to you with a question because they can't figure something out, a lot of times our initial instinct is to jump in and figure it out or say, okay, you know, send me an email, I'll get to it. And we rob that person of the chance to learn to think more rigorously and to care more and all the good things that, that we say that we want to instill. So managers themselves can definitely start doing things differently by holding back when someone asks a question and instead to ask, what do you think? And oh. even this really simple question of pinging it back to them, right? Like they, they had this ball, they threw it to you, you caught it, and you can either do something with it or you can throw it back to them. And a lot of times throwing it back to them isn't lazy. It's actually the generous thing to do because you're giving them a chance to think more thoroughly about whatever it is that they came to you with. And a lot of times you'll be surprised because you say, what do you think? And, and then the person has, you know, a bunch of ideas already. They, you know, they've pretty much figured it out for themselves. And then all you need to say is, okay, great, go do that. I love it. Actually, I do that with my kids sometimes when they ask me <laughs> things and I, and I don't know how to answer it. My one daughter asked me, what happens after you die? And I said, well, what do you think? And it was fantastic, right? Like sometimes wow. people, right? And, and it happens in the workplace too. Sometimes people come to you with questions and you're like, I don't know the answer to that. And it, I could jump in, as you're saying, like I could jump in with you and we could try and solve this together. And sometimes that is the right approach. But many times if you just turn it back to them and say, well, what do you think? You discover everything they're thinking and it gives you just, even if you end up still working with them to solve through it, you've now moved 10 steps ahead because as you've said, you've given them that option, that opportunity to share what's on their mind and the thinking that they've done or to go do more thinking. So fantastic. We're going to wrap up here in just a minute, but I have a question about one of the managers in your life. So as you know, this podcast is about being a rock star manager with a thriving team. So tell me about one of the managers that you had the the pleasure and the honor of working for and what made that person such a wonderful manager to you? I love this question. And this is an easy one for me to answer because Seth was by far the best manager that I had. And he would actually probably revolt at me calling him a manager because so many times in the three years that we worked together, he would say, Wes, I'm not your boss. You know, if you're the CEO, I'm the board of directors, I'm a teacher, I'm a mentor, I'm a coach but I'm anything but your boss and I'm not going to tell you what to do. And it was this trust in me and, and the humility that he had as a leader that really got me to step outside of my comfort zone 10x and was really transformative for my career. And I think that working with him so closely, I really saw and learned that leadership can really look flexible. You know, I, I had come from more traditional organizations, bigger organizations. And I thought that being a manager or a leader meant, wow, I finally get to tell people what to do. This is so great. You know, finally I've made it. And when we were growing the team, you know, first it was just him and me with a whiteboard figuring out, okay, what does the Alt MBA look like? And, and making really high level strategy decisions. Like, do we want this to be for a hundred people or for a thousand people? Do we want this to be affordable or premium product? Um, and we were working really closely together, but eventually we needed to grow the team. And I started hiring students that were in the Alt MBA and had just graduated. And I remember thinking, okay, now I have a team. This is so great. I can tell people what to do. And he really reminded me that, that real leaders don't always have to be center stage. 
that they can lead from behind and they can put other people center stage. And I really incorporated that into my work, even though it was, it was hard in the beginning and, and took adjustment to getting used to. So for example, when I was hiring classes of coaches, I noticed that there were certain students within the existing cohorts that would be great to be in our team. And instead of saying, okay, well, you know, I always have to be the head coach or I always have to be the one managing everyone. I thought, you know, how can we grow the team in a way where I can put other smart people in place? I don't always have to be in the spotlight and that other great leaders are, are people that we can groom and really invest in, you know, and some of the best people that we have there today are people that I spotted from the initial classes of the Alt-MBA and had a ton of potential, spent months training them. And, and eventually, you know, some of them are, are head coaches now, one of them is a provost. But I think if I didn't take that posture of, hey, I should let other people take center stage. And that doesn't mean that I'm a worse leader. It means I'm a better leader. I don't think the organization would be as resilient, as creative, as caring and amazing as it was through the years. So I really credit Seth with teaching me to, you know, not always need to be center stage and to think about what's best for an organization and to trust that the people that I hire are going to be amazing and are going to to represent us well. Fantastic. Thank you. And definitely shout out to uh, Seth Godin. So we're wrapping up. Um, where can people find you and stay in touch and keep up with all the good stuff you're up to? You can subscribe to my blog at westko.com. And you can also find me on Twitter at, at Wes underscore KO. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed learning from you and I look forward to staying connected in the future. Awesome. Thanks so much, Mamie. If you want to know more or if you want Wes to help you tackle your specific challenges, join the special group coaching Q&A call with Wes. It is open to anyone who is a member of the Modern Manager community on Patreon at the $5 level and above. You can join at patreon.com slash modernmanager. And when you join, you will get lots of other great content and guest specials as well. You can message your questions to me directly on Patreon. You can send them to me by email or on LinkedIn. And we will share the recording afterwards. And if you can attend live, it will be Thursday, October 11th at 1 p.m. Eastern. In the future, if you want all of this information in your inbox, you don't have to remember it, subscribe to my newsletter at mamieks.com and you will receive my weekly emails that have the episode, the free mini guides, my weekly blog article, and other important information. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. Meetings are one of the most critical components of healthy collaboration, and teams are at the heart of how we work. Meteor helps you use your time in meetings productively, build healthy relationships with your colleagues, and move work forward. To learn how we do it, visit meteor.com. That's M-E-E-T-E-O-R.com. You've been listening to The Modern Manager. You're already becoming a rock star boss of a thriving team, I can tell. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.